Well, come on back and grab a seat. Show mom, show mom. And uh, open up your Bible to John chapter 3. Hey, one more announcement. We have a young lady here in the fellowship who dances for the Grace Christian Dance Company. Isn't that cool that you can dance for the Grace Christian Dance Company? Isn't that wonderful? And her name's Hannah for Cat. And there's a couple, her and a couple ladies, young ladies from Narroway have their recital on May 13th, 2022 uh, at 6 p.m. at the Bible Chapel. So wouldn't it be cool if uh, some folks got together and watched, went down and watched the recital? If you have questions, the parents, Kirk and Amy, are back here. Raise your hand, and you can see them, and they can tell you about the cost and all that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, Grace Christian Dance Company at the Bible Chapel, May 13th. How cool is that? So good stuff. Okay. Well, we're going to turn to John chapter 3. And uh, we're going to continue on at the book of John. And I think maybe we should all stand up and do jumping jacks before we do. Right? Just, I just got the feeling that we should get going here. But uh, let's just be, listen, listen, sometimes, you, you know there's a story about Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell is an avowed atheist who hates the Lord, hates his dad, hates the person who abused him as a kid, and is ready to come home from Stanford and murder his dad. No kidding. And a group of Christians keep sitting in the lunch area and inviting him to come and just share life. And there was something about them that made Josh McDowell, who really is an intellectual man, you know, blessed with a great intellect, to go searching on why Christianity is false and is a big lie. And many of you know, he searched for a couple years, and I can't remember if it was Sweden or Switzerland, because now, you know, to look at the manuscripts of the Bible and all that sort of thing, you can do a lot of the research online. Then you couldn't. You had to go to actual libraries. And he's about two years into his search, and I can't remember. It's either Switzerland or I know it's an S. It's not South Dakota. I know that. And he scoots his chair back from his library desk and just goes, oh, my, it's true. And the Lord spoke to him through his research and study in the scriptures and the evidence for the resurrection, and he knew it was true. It's, I was thinking about that this week. Well, I've been a believer for a while. And as I was studying this week for John chapter 3, I believe it's true. But this week, I sort of had the Christian's Josh McDowell moment. Oh, boy. It's true. John chapter 3. What a scripture. And it is, as you know, probably the most, contains the most famous verse in the Bible. And that's John chapter 3, 
verse 16. You know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, which means if you are outside of Christ, listen to this. I mean, I'm not real smart, but I can figure this out. If you're outside of Christ, the Bible tells us that we're perishing. And we don't say that in some way that's like, um, you know, we're not perishing and you are. We say it with heavy hearts. And at the same time, hearts of celebration because we want other folks to know of the life that Jesus gives. That whoever believes in him should not perish, and then it just, he finishes out the sentence, but have everlasting life, real life. It's the most famous, maybe, verse in the Bible, and we're going to talk about it today. I want you to remember something, that this book, John, doesn't hide the evangelistic ball. He doesn't hide anything about why he's writing. He tells us in the 20th chapter of the book of John exactly why he's writing. He says, but these are written. What are written? Many other signs, and I want you to write this down. He doesn't call them miracles in the book of John. He calls them signs. And the reason he calls them signs is they're real things that happen to real people, but there's something, there's a spiritual lesson behind it. Just like when you see the red stop sign. I mean, you know. <laughs> there's some, there's, there's, a, there's a statute that says if you run that, you're going to go into the magistrate's uh, chambers, and you're probably going to, you know all that stuff that sits behind it. And you know if you run it, you might hurt somebody or kill somebody, so you don't run it. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's meaning behind the sign. And that's beautiful. And I hope to tell you why. Uh, especially as we get into John chapter 3, but I want you to remember that John here, who's very old when he writes this book, has many different themes within the book. It's so multi-layered, that's what struck me this week. It's so multi-layered that this book had to have been inspired. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. You know that, right? Which means, I want you to know this, because a lot of Christians don't know this. God didn't dictate to the writers, like, okay, you know how you... I, I used to have that thing, and I would do it and write letters that way and put it on this thing, and somebody would type it up for me. That's not how God inspired the Bible. <laughs> it wasn't dictation. Uh, inspiration is not an event. Write that down. It's, an, it's a process. And here's what's beautiful about it. The Lord took these men and used all their gifts and talents and prepared them all these years so that at the proper time, they would write the Gospels, the letters, etc., you guys tracking with me? That's what inspiration means. It doesn't mean dictation, dictation. Oh, what you dictate? That's how we, no, he used it. And as the Lord impressed upon their heart, he used their gifts and talents. And you can see it in here. And the reason I'm telling you that is 
John had to have written this out, thought about it, as the Lord, in, or as the Holy Spirit inspired him, and then wrote it out and edited it and put it into a pattern. Because some of the things that I'm seeing here for the first time in John, and now this is the third time I personally have taught through the book of John, I've never seen before. And I want you to see it. Because if you're here today and you don't know whether you're going to heaven or have an everlasting relationship with the Lord and everlasting life, the first thing I hope is that you will have that before you leave. And for those who know that they have everlasting life, you know what I hope happens? That you know Jesus so intimately here that your worship and faith will just explode, not because of how great you are and you are wonderful folks, but I got news for you. You're sinners saved by the grace of God. So we're all on equal footing here. But that your devotion and love for the Lord because of how much he's loved you and he took the time to put this in a, such a way that's so beautiful and sublime. I had to look up sublime this morning, so if you need to do that. I knew I wanted to use that word, but I had to look it up to make sure it was okay. But it is. It's so awe-inspiring. That's what sublime means that I hope it'll bless you. So we start in the first chapter and John writes a prologue. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. Nothing was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness didn't comprehend it. And then we see uh, John the Baptist come in and uh, he, we're sort of introduced to him in between these things. And one of the things that you should know in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the word, that's Jesus, by the way. We showed you why that's Jesus. The word becomes flesh, astounding. The one who is God and was there at the beginning when the world was created, time was created, this one came out of the heavens and became like you and I. The further books in the Bible and the New Testament tells us that that happened for a number of different reasons, but one great reason is he now can empathize with you. and He knows your temptations because he was fully God but fully man. So he knows what you're going through. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, here, are you in a funk, a rut? Are you tempted by something? Have you felt the sting of betrayal? From people and relationships, have you ever felt the sting of a betrayal that hurts so bad you can't hardly stand it? Okay, he knows. And on and on and on. He can relate to us in all of our things, our problems. He became flesh and he tabernacled. He came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And he's full of grace and truth. He's not full of just grace. And he's not just full of truth. He's the perfect blend of grace and truth. He can say hard and difficult things gracefully. But he can also say graceful things truthfully. And I don't know about you, but I need the Lord in my life to be able to do that. Because I want to give people truth a lot in my human flesh. I'm just being honest. 
<laughs> if I get fleshly, man, I want to do that. That's not Jesus, man. He's full of grace and truth. And so we see this, and John bears witness of him. And uh, you see uh, in verse 29, John calls Jesus, John his cousin or relative really, his relative, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And this is the key here now. You want to write this down. This is the first mission of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's job number one. <laughs> That's at the beginning. That's the number one thing Jesus came to do is to take away the sin of the world. You know when somebody is evangelizing, I probably have fallen into this myself. People will evangelize and say, you know, if you just say the prayer on the back of the magazine, your life is going to be great. Well, that's not the purpose of evangelism. The purpose of evangelism, first and foremost, is this, is that people get their sins forgiven by trusting in Jesus, who buys us back in redemption, Ephesians 1, verse 7, by his blood. That's numero uno. Now, do all the other things take place? You have peace, joy, love, those things, of course. But the number one chief need of man and women all around the world, every single one, is to have their sins forgiven. And that's his mission, man. That's Jesus' mission. And we go on and we see about the first disciples and Philip and Nathaniel. And then we come to, in chapter 2, uh, the first sign. The first sign is this. What is the first sign? It's changing water into wine. And that has amazing uh, lessons for us to learn in this great historical story here at Cana of Galilee in the north. But one of the things that this says, I'm convinced, is that the Lord himself overturned the purification system that was put in place by the Jews, because atonement for sin happened one time through Jesus' blood, and now you can be washed clean for your sins by the blood of Jesus. And that's the lesson of water to wine. And there's many other lessons, and one great lesson is this. He only showed this first little miracle set in the context of marriage, by the way, where he endorses marriage. In this one little miracle, he only shows it to his servants. He doesn't show it to the guests. And that's important, I think, because the Lord says if you want to, if you're in a place where you're dry and dusty in your spiritual life, well, are you serving? Because there's just something about getting your mind off yourself that the Lord can work with. Amen? Okay, so we did that. And then this is fascinating. Jesus cleanses the temple. And he didn't say, I will destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He actually said this, destroy this temple. In other words, you're going to destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. They use this later at his trial and on the cross to make fun of him by saying, you said that you were going to destroy the temple. Well, he didn't ever say that. But clearly he was talking because it says it here by John that he was talking of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remember that he'd said this to them uh, in verse 22, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now here, 
That's my little lead up to where we're going to start today. And that's in verse 23. I don't want you to forget 23 because you know that the chapter breaks aren't inspired. You know that, right? Okay, and here's one place where the chapter break really sort of disrupts the story. So let's do this. Let's read verse 23, and we're going to read down, I don't know, not the whole way. We'll read down to verse 8 of chapter 3. Here's the word of the Lord, starting in 2.23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees. Do you get it? Do you understand why there shouldn't be a chapter break? It's because he's describing now or giving an example of what he's been talking about at the end of chapter 2. And the first example is this man, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes uh, from and where it goes. Isn't that beautiful? So everyone who is born, uh, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And we'll read more here in a minute. Why don't you pray with me? Lord, just help us make sense of this. Help us to see this on a level we haven't seen it before, whether it's for the first time or the 20th time or wherever it is in our journey. Knit these things to our hearts so they'd be amazingly meaningful, and that we would go out and be able to know who Jesus is really, not who groups tell us he is. And then be a light and life to those who need it out and up dark and hurting world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he's in Jerusalem at the Passover. And here's what I want you to see for the first level of meaning. Do you know that after uh, Jesus, uh, or uh, in the book of um, Matthew, as Jesus is winding up his ministry and he's about ready to uh, ascend and uh, do all those sorts of things after he's risen. Over in verse 16 of chapter 28, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I want you to know something. If you go back and examine chapters one and chapter two, there's this alternation and it's going to continue on in what we're gonna see in chapters 2 through chapter 4, at the end of chapter 2. So really, chapter 3 and chapter 4, I know. Hey, stick with me for a minute. 
And what, the, what is this alternating pattern that we're going to see in the book of John is belief, unbelief. Belief, unbelief. Unbelief, belief. There's this mixture and comparison about people who believe and trust Jesus for their salvation and those who don't. Those who get close. Those who make a commitment, and we got to really watch saying that, and I say it, to Jesus. But you see, Jesus didn't attach himself to them. You get what I'm saying here? When you go back into chapter 23, Jesus said, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them. What? Why? Because he knew all men. He knew what was inside their heart. He knew what, if there was a flicker of faith or not. You, you get this? And he says, though, for those who have surrendered their life to him, and, and we're going to read what that means and study what that means in a minute. Jesus comes and sp speaks to the disciples back in Matthew 28 and says, all authority has been given to me. I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples. Where? Of all the nations. Look, that's our mission. We're to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. You know that, right? Okay, time out. I got a point. If you go to Acts chapter 1, Verse 8, you're going to receive power, Jesus says to his followers. In Acts 1, verse 8, we're to make disciples, but where are we supposed to go? Oh, and by the way, he doesn't just pat you on the head and say, do your best. He gives you the person and work of the Holy Spirit to go minister and you shall be witnesses to me. Watch this. Do you think this made an impression on Paul in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth? Now, I want you to file that away for a second. Because when you go back to the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, there's this alternating discussion by John inspired about what true faith is and how somebody has eternal life. And the first person, he, signed, or he, he gives us uh, an example of to look at as Jesus approaches him, is this person who is in Jerusalem, Judea. Who's the second person he gives to look at. Well, in chapter 4, he gives a per, uh, uh, an example of the Samaritan woman. <laughs> Hold on. In chapter 5, he gives us, or excuse me, at the end of chapter 4, the third example he gives then before he does another sign, watch this, is, it's in, is in Galilee, all the way up in the north, which they would consider in Jerusalem the ends of the earth. You're not getting it. And here's why. Jesus just told us at the end of chapter 2, right before where we started reading, you destroy this temple. How would they destroy this temple? They'd pin him to a cross. They thought they were destroying the temple, but Jesus fooled them. So after the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ, he's going to send out his disciples to where? Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and Galilee. It's mind-blowing. Why am I doing this? Because John knew it. And amongst all the other things that John is doing right here, he's setting up a pattern of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ means so many things, but one of the things it means is that you're going to get power to go and minister to different kinds of people because the first person he ministers to is in terms of socioeconomic status of the world, he's all the way up there. And the second person he ministers to is all the way down there, not in God's economy, but I'm talking about in the world's economy. He ministers to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, folks. Come on. So you know back at the time of Jesus, there were about 6,000 men who were a member of the Pharisees, of the Pharisaical sect, S-E-C-T. And they believed in the first five books of Bible and keeping it in an orthodox way. And they were fastidious. They were strict. And he was part of this group. And he was a man named Nicodemus who was a ruler of the Jews, which means something, folks. It means that he was part of the ruling religious and civil council of Israel at the time. There were only 70 members plus one, 71. And the reason I'm saying it that way is because there were 70 members who ruled things that happened up in the temple area and in society, and then the high priest at the time was sort of the grand poobah, the leader. This, this is a guy who's at the top of the top of the top. Some extra biblical writings say he was one of the top four wealthiest men in Israel, Jerusalem, in that area at the time. Whether that's true or not, that's not said in the Bible, but it's extra biblical. So here you have a man, watch this, I want you to know this before we move on, who had an unbelievably amazing intellect. who had gained notoriety, fame, power. He had money, the God of America and probably the world. Money and power. He'd been trained at the best schools. He had the best, by the way, he was Jewish, so he had the best pedigree in terms of the nationality that he grew up in because God came to the Jews. So he has, watch this, he has everything in the world that's going for him. Do you understand that? Everything in the world uh, going for him. Do you know there's this verse, here I wrote this in pencil. If you were here, I'm having trouble with my eyes. So when I write it in pencil, I can't see it that well. So I'm going to take this off. Watch this though. For you see, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, your calling, brothers, that not many wise according to the flesh, or not many wise according to the, the flesh, or not many noble are called, there we go, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing that are. But I want you to know something. Not many wise or not many noble are called, but that means there are some that are wise and noble. Do you get it? I used to, when I was investigating the claims of Christ, I would always say, yeah, man, but this, this is what I said. Just so just, I have to be real with you. I can't help it. I'm the pastor. I just have to be real. I would say stuff like this. They were thinking in my mind, Lord, I don't see any rich people coming to know you in a real and saving way. And back at that time, Lord, I don't really want to be poor. I would say stuff like this. And you're thinking I'm a horrible monster or something, but this story really resonated with me. Because I'd come across this and go, shoot, there it is. The Lord approaches a wealthy, rich dude. And I came to learn that he wants us to be humble and poor in spirit. And that's the message of this story. Watch this. Remember, you have multi-layers. You have the alternating examples of belief and trust. You have light and darkness. We've already seen the first sign. After we get done with these three examples, Jesus, oh, you know what happens. We pay a Jerusalem fund so we can all go back to Israel. So whoever's phone that is, uh, you're going to pay for it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but he has these multi-levels, and uh, this thing is after these three examples of these three people that Jesus approaches, one, a real wealthy dude, one, a lady who's not in the same socioeconomic class, in fact, on the other uh, ends of the spectrum, and one sort of a nobleman's son, so uh, in there somewhere, but and he's going to be in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and Galilee, just like the Lord said. It's this pattern. John was impressed by it. And John knew that in order to move out in those ways, folks, you can't do it in the flesh. You can't do it according to your own ability. You need the person and work of the Holy Spirit to do it, not only to come into the family of God, but to minister for God. You get it? All right. Man, maybe I'm more excited than I should be, but we'll just go with it, okay? But there's this man. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler. He's on the ruling council. Some say he was ultra wealthy. This man came to Jesus by night. That's another theme. Just trace it. Write this down. Darkness and light. He comes by night. I'm not going to kill him for this. He probably was an ultra busy man, and he had uh, he wanted to have Jesus all to himself so he could ask him some questions. Some people say Nicodemus was scared or uh, didn't want to associate Jesus. Well, maybe, but we know this about Nicodemus. We see him only in three places, all in the book of John, only. Only in the book of John. You see him in three places in the book of John. Here, you see his... De- his uh, desire for Christ. I mean, he has this desire to find out who he is. And in chapter 7, uh, verses 42 or so through 52, 
there's this dispute that arises between some of the ruling council people and some others, and Nicodemus steps in and says, hey, ruling council people, religious people, we should give this a fair listen. We should listen fairly and try to do what's right, not give him the short end of the stick. But then, in chapter 19, you see something amazing. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've seen, you've looked in the tomb. And there was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea who actually went to Pontius Pilate and said, hey, could we take the body and, you know, do what's right and all that sort of thing. And Joseph puts him in his tomb, which Joseph was a rich man. But guess what? In John 19, we're told that Nicodemus came alongside of Joseph of Arimathea with a massive amount of spices, which means he had some money. And he helped the burial. Do you understand how much he stuck his neck out to do that? Here these people are, uh, and the Romans, you know, adverse to Jesus and his thing. And we see by the end of chapter 19, Nicodemus has fully devoted himself or put himself out there in devotion to the Lord. It's a pretty beautiful story. Here he's rich. And he comes to Jesus by night. So you could say, you, you, you think about this and be a Berean yourself. He probably was really busy and it was happening. He wanted to get alone with him, get all his questions. Was he scared or not to be identified? Maybe, maybe not. But the story turns out great. We know you are a teacher come for God. Watch this. For no one can do these miracles. Doesn't say that. He says, do these signs that you do unless God is with them. He knew, just like a lot of people in the world, knew there was something about the Lord. He's doing some things. He's, there's supernatural events happening around him. And man, I just want to sort of get close to him and ask him some questions. That's what people in the world say today. You understand this? And I want you to remember, I know I'm going back to this, I, I, I know, but I want you to remember, this is in the area of belief and disbelief. Will I trust him or will I not trust him? This is in this section that Paul's dealing with, and he just came out of chapter 2 where he said Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in all men. And what I'm trying to say is, at the beginning of Nicodemus's story, there was something about him. And his heart that Jesus wasn't connecting to. And he wants you to know that. And he wants the American church to know it. Because there's millions of people flooding churches week after week and they don't know the Lord. Jeez, I don't like saying that. But Jesus said something. It's maybe the scariest verse of the Bible where he says, you call me Lord, Lord, and I never even knew you. And I don't want any of us to miss that or to end up on the wrong side of that. And so I want you to see this and somebody tell you the truth about this. Is that you're coming out of this place where Jesus, you can think about and debate the theological consequences of the end of chapter 2, but it says it plainly. He didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men. He knew what was in his hearts and had 
No need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Man, that's deep. And here he comes, and he doesn't, there doesn't, shouldn't have a chapter break. And he goes, for example, there's this really rich dude who has all the power in the world, all the pedigree, all the education. And he sort of missed it. Jesus is saying, Holy Spirit is saying, and I don't want you to miss it. We don't want to miss it together. So Jesus answered and said to him, yeah, yeah, right. You, you've seen signs. But remember, Jesus doesn't want us to build our faith on the signs. Are signs great? Yes. Are we praying for miracles? Uh-huh. Do we love miracles? Yes, praise the Lord. But if you build your faith on signs, what happens if you don't get a sign? Now what? And that's what Jesus is addressing too. He's saying, pay attention here. If you build your, your life on signs and miracles and all that sort of thing, you're going you're to be like a sprinter on the 400. One time in seventh grade, no, ninth grade, I was a high jumper. That's funny because I can't jump very high. And they didn't have anybody for the 400. One time around. They're like, you go in there. Oh, 400? I could have run a 400 in my sleep. You know, I play basketball, I play football, I could do this. So they shoot the gun off. And for 200 yards, I'm telling you, I'm, I might as well go to turn around and run backwards. I was killing these guys. And about 200 yards in, it felt like somebody put a piano on my back. And I finished last. <laughs> and that's what people are like who depend upon signs. They start out like a house of fire, a firework in the sky. And they want this. And by, trust me, we want miracles too. But if you don't base your Christian life on God's word by the Holy Spirit, child of God, taking in his word by the Holy Spirit, what happens if you never get a sign? You're going to go in the spiritual decline. So Jesus wants to correct that, and he says to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. <laughs> Hold on. This must have been so confusing for Nicodemus in some senses. Unless one is born again. Now, I want you to know something. That's a Greek word that really means born from above. It means born from above. So you have a word, you're born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This must be a really important matter, right? Wouldn't you say? Because you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again or born from above, born from heaven. That's what this says. Now think about it. Here's what we try to do. Education, image, power, do it ourselves, obey everything that we can, and by the way, we should obey. Obey in our own strength, do it, and really, if truth be told, there's a lot of flesh in the church, and what we do is we try to be better than other people a lot of the times and work our way to God. And with one sentence, 
One little inspired sentence. Jesus just comes and blows it up. If you're counting on how good of a Christian you are, you are missing the scriptures. Here's why. You must be born again even to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, watch this. How, 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 how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's just saying, I can't figure this out. What are you talking about, Jesus? Are you talking about a birth that is physical where you'd have to be born again? And Jesus answered and said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter. Here it is again. Number two, you can't see the kingdom of God or you can't even come into the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the spirit. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or born from above. Okay, now let's break this down a little bit. Because this will do, do away with competition in the church, competition among others, comparing yourself against others, I think in a big way. Most assuredly, he says in verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born from above, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Or born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So let's talk about what the kingdom of God is first. Who here wants to be in the kingdom of God? I mean, you raise your hand, you say, shoot, I want to be in the kingdom of God. I mean, I read that and go, okay, I'm perked up now, Lord. You got my attention. How do I get in the kingdom of God? Well, first, what is the kingdom of God? Anywhere where God reigns. So in a sense, during this period of time, he reigns in the hearts of those who have surrendered their lives to him and believed. He reigns in the hearts of those people. But guess what Jesus is doing? He's going to come back to this earth and rule and reign here for a thousand years, kingdom, and you're going to participate. You're going to have a job in the kingdom of God. But watch, at the end of that time, all of that is going to fade away and we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. So really, when we say, when people die, do they go to heaven? It's really sort of a misnomer. You do go to be with the Lord, but when he establishes the new heaven and the new earth, that's where we're going to reside forever. And listen, that's the kingdom. And Jesus says, watch this. You can't even see it, let alone enter in unless you're born again or born from above. And this born from above is intimately connected with verse 8. Don't you love this, man? You ever just been on a, who, who likes to go to a picnic when they're with their family? And man, especially in the summertime or whatever, you go on a picnic. You ever just had that wonderful, amazing, beautiful day? Maybe you're in the grass or something around the trees and you just lay down and you just see the wind blowing, and sometimes the leaves go upside down or whatever they do. I don't know if they're upside down. And they look silvery and sh they shimmer. And it's just like, wow, how does that happen? And you go, I, you're thinking, I know it's wind. That's creating the beauty, but I, I can't see the wind. I only see the effects of the wind. Get, get it? That's what he's saying here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes 
from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Oh, man. Listen, I want you to know this, that the Lord wants you to reason with him about intellectually knowing him and whether it's true and the resurrection and all that sort of thing. He says, come reason with me. He says it. I'm it's okay, you got questions, come. But here, the Lord of heaven who's come down tells this rich man with an intellect and all that sort of thing, watch this. In order to be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again or born from above, and you're really not going to see anything. Like, like I used to think when I surrendered my life to the Lord, remember when Peter Brady kissed his girlfriend and Brady Bunch and you... The, no one, no one saw that. Well, there's this episode where Peter Brady sees, kisses his girlfriend for the first time, and it's funny. Fireworks go off and all that sort of thing. And uh, if you, well, I got something funny, but I won't say it. <sighs> Lord, help me just keep my tongue. But it's a funny episode, and Peter Brady does it. I sort of thought that's what was going to happen when I surrendered my life to Christ. I just sort of thought, you know, there'd be more than me sitting in my dorm room and talking to the Lord. I just thought the Lord would, I don't know, open and shut the door, slam it, have trumpets go off or something. But I got to tell you something, nothing like that happened. But see, then after that, just like many of you, the things that I desired before, my appetites changed or... The trajectory of my life was way different. I wasn't perfect and still not perfect, just like you folks. But the trajectory of our lives changes. And there's nothing like the Lord sends down a certificate and says, okay, you're now a believer and in the kingdom of God. There's nothing like that, although he does write our name in the book of life. But he doesn't give it to us right now. What happens is you see and look at your life and you go, oh, my I don't know how this happened, but the Lord changed my life and my desires and appetites. And I believe, Lord, and I trust. And I know the Bible says in a different place, my spirit bears witness with the spirit that you're dad, you're Abba. And I'd never had that before. No, no, no relation. I went to church for 19 years. I couldn't say he was my dad. No way. He was somebody in a book that nobody would tell me about. He says here, he says, wow, in order to see, in order to be in the kingdom of God, well, there's one thing that has to happen. You've got to be born from above. And the way that you're born from above is you're born of water and the Spirit. And you see this, just if you don't know anything about the Bible, you know the first thing you see right there? Hmm. Just like when I had a physical birth, I didn't really have much to do with my spiritual birth. In other words, I can't say to you all, and you can't say to me, wow, I'm really good for how I got into the kingdom of God. You can't say that. You understand? Because there's something spiritual that happens that makes you born again or born from heaven. 
And what that is, is that you're born of water and the Spirit. Now, theologians have been debating, not the second of the two here, water and Spirit. They all understand that you're born by the Spirit of God. The Lord comes and touches your heart. He draws you to himself, and you surrender your life to Christ, and you become, watch this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you become a new creation. I want you to get out of your head. Reformation. That's what lots of us think the Christian life is. I'll do better. I'll be better. I'm going to take Tim and just be a better person. That ain't Christianity, folks. That's some self-help thing you ought to put on the PBS channel that never works anyway. Because here's why. Quickly. And then we'll get to why water is in there. Here's why. The Bible tells us a story that we all have sinned and gone astray. All of us. And the Bible says that the soul that sins shall surely die. Die. Spiritual separation from God forever. Anybody who's a sinner is going to be separated from God, and all of us are sinners. So we all have this thing where we come and we're under this condemnation. You go, oh man, that's a heavy word. Really? Look down in uh, verse 17. Oh, wait, wait. Look down at 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, the whole world, when we're born, watch, we're under condemnation. Ephesians says the wrath of God is appointed unto us. I always do that because I feel like it's like, boom, I mean, the laser of wrath is on you. We're condemned already. Unless what? You're born from above. That's it. You must be born from above. And you must be born of water and the Spirit. The Spirit does something. And He makes you a new creation. He makes you a new creation. He doesn't make old Tim better. He makes old Tim go away and become new Tim spiritually. We ought to be jumping up and down at that one. So what is it? How are you born of water and the Spirit? Well, you're born by the Holy Spirit. We know that. But what's water? Well, there's many different uh, uh, thoughts about that. One thing, born of water. Uh, some say it's water baptism. We totally reject that. It's not water baptism. Come on. The thief on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Water baptism is symbolic. It's a necessary thing. You should do it in obedience to the Lord. But it's an outward commitment that you make to all the world of something that happens or has already happened to you inside spiritually. So I don't think it's water baptism. I think it may be just the fact uh, that um, you were born from a mother, you were in an am amniotic sac, and you had fluid around you, and you were born from water. And here, maybe, and I probably lean towards this, although the third argument is compelling as well, or the third explanation. That you're born of water, yes, you're going to be born, but then you need to be born of the Spirit. You need to have a second birth. You understand that? 
And the second birth isn't the physical, it's the one being born from above. Well, there's a third uh, interpretation. In Ezekiel uh, 36, if you don't know this, uh, you should know this. In Ezekiel 36, you know that he says he's going to give uh, his people a new heart and put a new spirit within them, and he's going to remove the heart of stone. And in that chapter, he also talks about water that cleanses. And when you look through the Bible, water does or is a symbol of a cleansing thing or a cleansing agent and uh, spiritually. And here it might just be he's just using you're going to be cleansed and then given new life. Here's what I would say. Be a great Berean and study that for yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to ask you what that means. Whatever, I know this. In order for you to be in the family of God, you must have something supernatural happen for you. <laughs> does man save or does God save? Well, God saves, but you come to the Lord. And Romans 10 says, if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus was who he says he was, died and rose again, you shall be saved. Why is uh, Paul in Romans saying that and John in John saying this? Because it's hand in glove. When you come to the realization that Jesus is who he says he is and you trust and believe in faith, watch, and give your whole life unto that. Don't your whole life, you say, I'll be a follower, a disciple. I want to come into your kingdom, Lord, and I want you to save me. The Lord is going to supernaturally save you by his spirit, which means you're born from above. So watch, you know, why am I spending so much time on this? Because when I look around the room, and when you look around the room, if you really understood this and do this, man, it would eliminate fights in the church like you wouldn't believe. There's my brother back there, and he, he likes to be on the committee and bug me about the, I don't know, whatever, I don't know, about the building way to build the church or the Sunday school procedures. No, no. That brother back there was born out of heaven, just like I was born out of heaven. You, when I look around the room, you're not just people. You are people. God gives you a body. You're not Casper the ghost. You're a body. But listen, if you surrendered your life to Christ, you count on Jesus. Look, you were born out of heaven. He would not bring you here and not give you the power and resource to live this life. He does. You're called for something different. Why do you think he asks us not to be in the world? Because you're born from heaven. The Bible says, I got so excited I didn't finish my thought on this. That sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Adam, man. But then it came to others, all of us. Everybody else is born under the condemnation of sin. They have a sin nature, but they also have sinned indeed. So they have a sin nature and they're sinners by deed. We're sinners by deed. Watch. And those who are born into this world are born of Adam. They must be born again out of heaven to be, have entrance into heaven so that now you're not a slave to sin, Romans 6, 7, and 8, 
but that you're a slave now or you're tied to righteousness. You have a new nature. That's what the Bible says. You have a new nature. And the Bible tells us in other places, and I got to remind myself of this. Do you have to remind yourself of that, of this? To walk worthy of your calling. What's your calling? You were brought to life out of heaven. And your calling is to walk according to your inheritance, your new lineage, which is now your uh, heir with Christ, H-E-I-R. Oh, my. Well, that's that. Don't be marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows. We said this. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answers and said to him, again, watch this. How? Come on, man. How can this be? And Jesus answers and said to him, and the people who study uh, languages are very keen on the word the teacher. Are you the teacher of Israel? In other words, we don't exactly know who Nicodemus was, but this sort of implies he was like the teacher of Israel. You mean you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Why would he say that? Because the Old Testament is filled with these things. Isaiah 44, I'll pour water on the thirsty land, on streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, my spirit. Uh, what else? Ezekiel 11. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. In other words, they're going to be enabled to, to obey by the new power of the spirit. Do you get this? This is in the Old Testament, folks. I read you Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah 31, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 32, 39, I'll give them one heart, one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. He's going to cut away the fleshly part and give you a spiritual heart. And on and on and on. And what Jesus is saying, wait a minute. Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel. And I don't think Jesus says it like I would say it. Like, dude, how'd you miss this? I just think he says, how did you miss it? How did you miss it? You're the teacher of Israel. It's right there in my word. The things that you would study, Nicodemus. Watch this. Here you got this guy who's got all the privileges of life, a great intellect, an ability to remember tons of information, including the scriptures, a great pedigree, both educationally and where he grew up or how he grew up, the people, you know, the race that he was from and the, the uh, he was from the Jews. You have power. You have all the things, 
access to the highest places. And watch this. He missed it. And that's what the Lord's saying. Don't miss it. You could even read the scriptures and just go right over it. And he says, most assuredly, verse 11, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, that's fascinating to me. And I don't know if I can answer it for you. Because Jesus says, we. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 3. Nicodemus, this man, came to Jesus by night and said to him, watch this, Rabbi, we. Now, many people believe uh, Nicodemus wasn't by himself. Some people believe that he brought a whole contingent of highfalutin religious people to come over and hear this stuff. Or he, if it wasn't that, he was sent by them. Get it? So Jesus says, isn't this fascinating? When he comes back to him and answers him, he says, are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Most assuredly, watch, I say to you, I, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witnesses. Now, you could read every common, you could read 20 commentaries, you're gonna get 20 explanations for this. So I'm gonna give you a couple. Could it be he's speaking of the divine trinity? What do we believe in? One God in three persons. And if that's true, folks, if that's true, think about what you're reading right here. You're reading about what the things of the Lord from time, <laughs> there is no time. I mean, from all the way back, there was never a, these things that the Trinity, one God in three persons, discussed and knew about. We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Oh my gosh, that's really powerful. <laughs> He's saying, you and we want to know something. How about this we? Now, it could be what he's talking about is the disciples. I don't think so, but most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And in a, less, uh, in a way, that's true. That's what we do. We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. And but this is Jesus talking. <laughs> if I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Again, I don't think he's scolding them. I think he's leading them to the place of coming to the Lord spiritually as opposed to his pedigree. It would be so easy for him to say, well, I'm on the ruling council. I'm a Jew. I you know, I have a lot of money. I have access. Of course, the Lord's going to help and save me. Be very easy to say that. And the Lord says, wait, 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 wait. You need to know. You need to move towards heavenly things, not earthly, fleshly things. No one, verse 20 or 13, has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is heaven. Now, you're not Jewish, so you don't get this very well. Do you know in Daniel 7, there's a whole prophecy about the Messiah coming, and the Messiah's name is 
son of man. And so to a Jewish person who's reading this or listening to this, Nicodemus, he would have been stunned. Wait a minute. Come down from heaven, son of man. Are you saying, could it be what you're saying is true? You're the Messiah? You're the one? Now, he gives us three right in a row here in this vein as he continues on how to be saved. And the first thing he does is he gives us a story out of the Old Testament, Numbers 21. If you read Numbers 21, they've been in the wilderness. Guess what they're tired of? They're such Americans, but they live in the wilderness. (laughs) They're tired of the manna. They've been wandering around. They're sick of the manna. You know what, Lord? We're sick of the miracle you send us every day. We're sick of it. And they get really irate and uptight. And guess what the Lord does? He sends fiery serpents into the camp and they bite them with poison. And they could die, right? And they do die, some of them. But what the Lord does is, as he talks to Moses and says, I want you to lift up a bronze serpent up on a pole and tell the people if they'll just look to the serpent, they'll live. They'll escape the poison. Everybody tracking with me? And Jesus says here, okay, Nicodemus, I'm going to give you something you can hold on to. You remember that story in Numbers 21, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, Messianic reference, Daniel 7, the Son of Man must, or or excuse me, must the Son of Man be lifted up, watch it, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I want you to see something before you close on me here. You're about ready to shut it down, and I don't blame you. The very thing that was doing the killing, snakes, is what was put up on the pole. Are you getting it? The very thing that kills us, sin, is imputed to Jesus at the cross on the pole or the tree. Are you you seeing it? But whoever looks to that, I mean, folks, I don't know about you, but there's one thing that freaks me out. Snakes. I hate them. I don't even want to see a garden snake. I hate snakes. Oh, I shouldn't say that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I don't like to see snakes, man. When I was a little kid, I was out at the farm with some friends. I was a little kid. They were teenagers, and they were farm kids, and they shot a snake, and this one kid went like this and wrapped it around my neck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You imagine having to live with that for all these times? I don't like snakes. But here, and and here they're poisonous and they hurt and they kill and all that sort of thing. And Jesus says, the very thing that's doing the killing, I'm going to put up on the pole. But remember, Jesus had the sins of the world imputed to him. He never was a sinner, but they were imputed to him. 
But if you'll just, as this is freaking you out, as you're really discontented about it, if you'll just look to that, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. And watch. You'll be born again. And you'll have everlasting life. So when you're sharing with somebody, great. Bring on all the questions. Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Ask them. Come on, let's go. What about the people in the rainforest? Great, we got an answer. We, we could answer that. But when you're sharing the gospel or you're investigating the claims of Christ, do one thing, always come back to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if it happened, he's who he says he was or is, and he's God himself. He's the son of God. He's God the son. And if he rose again and died and rose again, he paid the penalty for our sins so that anybody who looks upon him at the cross and resurrection will be saved. That's amazing. And he says right after that, for God so loved the world. What's the motivation for all this? So he can be some big ogre in the sky to like have his thumb over top of you? It's not, that's not the motivation at all. He loved you. He loved me. That's the motivation. <laughs> so that he could figure out a way to punish sin and still save the sinner. Because he loves you. So he did this. He sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He is looking for salvation for people. That's what he wants to do. And then he goes, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. We talked about that. Everybody's born is born under condemnation because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does, the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done by uh, indeed. Listen, there's a lot of people who go around, maybe they're intellectual, maybe they've uh, talked about the claims of Christ. But one of the great reasons people stay from Christ, away from Christ is, oh my goodness, I'd rather be in the dark. I like it here. I like darkness rather than light. It's like a turning on the light for a bug or something. They just whoom, go to the darkness, right? And it's awful when you sort of have to come face to face with your own sin and your own heart. You go, wow, I didn't think I was like that. Men love darkness rather than light. Well, here it is. John here is saying, Nicodemus, you've got all the worldly advantages. But when you're presented with this, it seems to me, Jesus is saying, you'd prefer the darkness rather than the light. I mean, you have all the advantages and you're sort of interested in the claims of Christ. Doesn't that sound like a lot of people? But you're not willing to do or to have done what the Lord requires, and that's to be born of the Spirit 
and water, the water and the Spirit, to be born anew from heaven because it is a life of transparency. Before you yawn and get ready to go, I want you to tell I want to tell you something. You guys know who George Whitfield was? George Whitfield was a, a, a unbelievably uh, famous, effective British pastor who pastored during the colonial times. And guess who he knew very intimately? Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin was a universalist, but one time Whitfield in 1752 writes a letter to Ben Franklin. He says this, ready? I find you grow more and more famous in the learned world. Sounds like Nicodemus, doesn't it? I find you grow more and more famous in the learned world as you have made a pretty considerable progress in the mysteries of electricity. I would now humbly recommend to your diligent, unprejudiced pursuit and study the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important, interesting study and when mastered, will richly answer and repay you for all your pains. One at whose bar we are shortly to appear hath solemnly declared, without it we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You will excuse this freedom. He wrote this, folks. To Ben Franklin, watch this. You will excuse this freedom, but I must have something of Christ in all my letters. And what did he send Ben Franklin, who was wrapped up sort of like Nicodemus? He had come close to Christ. He knew of it, but he wouldn't surrender to Christ. He became very famous, very powerful. He was very smart. Ben Franklin, I don't know if you know this, wrote his own epitaph. He didn't say that he was a born-again Christian, but he was influenced by these teachings and the teachings of the resurrection of body. Here's what Benjamin Franklin wrote in his epitaph. Like the cover of, old, of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition corrected and amended by the author. Now, why did I read you that? Because if you're sitting here today, that's our letter to you. We, us, must remember that it's the new birth. Benjamin Franklin was confused about it as smart as he was. He wasn't confused probably intellectually but he wanted to gain entrance to heaven, a perfect edition of his body, watch this, without the cross. And you never can do that. So if you're here today, you can come. We're going to sing. If you're here today and you've never done this, if you've never been born of water and the Spirit, I want you to come here and talk to us. I don't want you to go home without giving your life to the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible tells us if you read the end of the book of Acts, there are two kings here that hear about Jesus by Paul. And you know what they both say? Sort of. I'm paraphrasing. Great speech. 
love the material, but I got to think about it. The problem is, as we've seen around here in Pittsburgh, you could be 24 years old walking across the highway and be killed. And the Bible tells us that it's appointed once to die for man and then the judgment. There are no second chances after we physically die. So I want to pray. We're going to sing, and after that, Beck will pray for us, and we'll go on out. But if there's anything you want to pray about or think about, come see us afterwards. I don't know about you, but when I read this, it's freeing. You talk about the grace of God, man. A new birth out of heaven. Amazing. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning, and thank you for these amazing truths we find in your word. And I pray, Lord, that if there's somebody here that doesn't know you in a real and saving way, well, they'd come to do that today. And I pray, Lord, for those who are hurting or struggling, maybe comparing themselves with others, that that's just fruitless and not good, but to just do what you've called them to do, Lord, because you bore them out of heaven too, and you've got a good and special plan for them. So I pray, Lord, you'd use this uh, teaching here today in a real deep and mighty way for all eternity and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.